Our Father, we thank you for the beauty of holiness which we experience as we approach the throne of God. Lord, we live in a world that is full of vileness and evil, and yet we know that you are a perfect God, and somehow you have continued to have mercy and patience with the people of this planet because you have a great plan, and we're thankful, Lord, that we have entered into that plan in the sense of becoming members of the kingdom of God. And I pray, Lord, that we will constantly strive to live in accordance with your plan and will for our lives. Lord, that we will, in each day of our lives, seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. Lord, we ask for your special blessing upon us now in the hour that is before us. Guide us in these matters as we study from the book of Genesis, and we'll praise you for your help in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 19. We began last week in looking at this uh, rather infamous chapter. Uh, let's uh, again begin reading with verse 1. Genesis 19.1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said, Where are the two men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Sounds like something on one of the uh, pay channels on uh, television. We finished looking at the 18th chapter where God had this encounter with Abraham at his tent at Hebron, and Abraham became the example of the intercessor. God gave him the opportunity to stand in the gap for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar. And so he did. And Abraham acted in a truly godly manner. The 19th chapter thus explains what happened as a result. The two angels. Now we know that three men were with Abraham. And it was quite obvious that one of those men was the Lord God himself in fleshly form. 
The other two we assumed were angels, and this in effect says that they were in the first verse of this passage, the two <laughs> angels. So these two uh, angels have come down now to the city of Sodom. And as we noted last week, Lot, exp uh, you know, he sort of acted uh, in a non-city-like manner. Typical city folk just don't walk out to people, walk in the gate and say, hey, come, come home with us, strangers, totally strangers, walking in through the gate. But his Bedouin background got a hold of him here, and so he uh, brought these two men into his house. Now, they had said, no, don't bother, we'll stay out here in the square. But, of course, uh, so, uh, Lot knew what kind of a city he was living in and what kind of people who lived there, and he knew what would happen to them if they remained uh, exposed uh, out of doors. And so he urged them, it says there, and it, it, the Hebrew there tells us that he pressed them strongly. He says, come with me. <laughs> You're not staying out here in the square. And so the angels did so. Of course, that was their purpose. Their purpose was there to come there and minister to Lot and to his family. So there's something to credit Lot here with the fact that he did extend hospitality to these two men. But there is very little to credit Lot with as you go through this whole account. What's interesting is that this chapter is the chapter of Scripture committed to Lot. Uh, almost the entire chapter has to do with Lot and his family. There are only three verses in which Abraham shows up in this particular passage. And as you look at the events which transpire here, it doesn't really give us a good feeling about Lot as we... Uh, proceed through this particular chapter. We, uh, last time, were able to cover the first three verses, so looking at verses 4 and 5 uh, of this passage, we're told there that before they were able to lay down for the evening, the men of the city came to pound at the door. Here we have described for us uh, the horrible, degenerate fruit of arrogance and self-worship. As we read last time, the passage in Ezekiel tells us that the great sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the Valley of Sedim was not the uh, symptoms that we're reading about here, but the root of it was that they were an arrogant, haughty people who worshipped themselves and, and wouldn't even share with any needy person at all and these other uh, degenerate things you read about here are simply the symptoms of a deeper problem that they had. The text specifically tells us, as we read there, that the men who came to the door of Lot's house were young and old. And it says they came from every quarter of the city. They came from all over the city of Sodom. So news spread rapidly, right, that two strangers had come into the city. They must have had some kind of a grapevine, uh, whereby information went real quickly uh, that two strangers had come into the city. And so they all came to the house of Lot to see these two men. So the whole population was infected with this gross sin. They had no idea who these strangers were. I mean, they had no clue who these strangers were. They were just plain strangers. And so how were they going to welcome them? They were going to welcome them by submitting them to the crime of homosexual rape. 
hundreds had gathered here at the door of Lot. And obviously, such a mass of people intended that this was going to be an orgy of some sort, which probably in, in the flesh would have resulted in the death of the victims by the time they had been passed around through hundreds of men. In verses 6 and 7 of this particular passage, we see that Lot went out to reason with them, huh, to appeal to their sense of shame. This tells us something of the blindness of Lot, that he actually would attempt to reason with them and, and appeal to a sense they didn't even have. It was obvious they had no sense of shame. In fact, they are perfectly described in the first chapter of Romans. I like to read those few verses there because these verses explain a lot of things. If you ever want to know what is why missions are necessary, why is it important to send people out to carry the gospel to peoples in far corners of the world who have never heard the gospel, why should we even consider that? First chapter of Romans gives you as good an answer as, as anybody needs. And this particular portion of the passage describes the people of the Valley of Sidim to a T. Therefore, verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, trustworthy, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. That, of course, is a description of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's also a picture of, uh, of a significant element of our society. And I don't mean a specific group. I mean our whole society is shot through with this whole thing. The fact that you can't even really make a movie today that anybody will go to unless it's filled with either violence or sex or, or vile language or something. Uh, that's what attracts the people, apparently. And it's because our society had go has gone that particular direction as a whole and not a specific group within our society alone. We've become a society that condones this kind of thing uh, condones all kinds of evil. And, you know, it's okay because it's whatever lifestyle you, you choose for yourself. Now we come to, as I mentioned at the end of class last week, a verse that I have a, a big problem with uh, in, in that it describes something that seems impossible. 
we discover that Lot allowed his sense of honor to overcome his sense of fatherhood. Now, he wasn't walking with God, and so he obviously made no appeal to God. I mean, if he even thought about God, he probably thought, oh, there's no way God's going to hear me because of the cesspool I'm living in. So he makes no appeal to God. Instead, he takes matters into his own hand. He goes outside the door, and he stands before this howling mob of, of virtually beasts, and he tries to appeal to them. And he makes the despicable offer that we find there in verse 8. Now, behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, I understand something of Bedouin hospitality and Near Eastern concept of uh, hospitality. But it seems to me that uh, this goes far beyond uh, what could be considered hospitality. Uh, I know there are certain societies that do a lot of things that are, seem strange to us. In the Eskimo society, in certain Eskimo societies, for example, if you visit a household, it's automatically, you know, your right to have the wife of the household for the night. But, you know, this, this is far worse than that, which, of course, is pretty bad to start with. But here, Lot is willing to sacrifice his own virgin daughters to this vicious mob. To what? To honor his word to two strangers. Is this really something that we should honor Lot for? I don't think so. I think it's an expression of selfishness. He is selfish in that he does not want to lose face for having promised shelter to two people and then have that shelter denied to those two. And that would simply be losing face for him. It would be, you know, that, that his, he wasn't able to carry out his word, and so it would be embarrassing to him if this were to happen. But it would seem to me far worse and more embarrassing, uh, embarrassing isn't even a good word, doesn't even begin to describe, to, to have your, your daughters violated and butchered, because that's what would happen to them. Remember later on, the scripture talks about a man who turned over his concubine to such a mob as this, and she was dead the next morning. I think that Lot should have been willing to sacrifice his own life to protect his daughters, if that was what was necessary, but not Lot. He's going to give them to these men if they would but go away and leave the strangers alone. Now, what is the reaction of the mob? Well, I, I think we discovered the degree to which this mob is consumed, literally consumed, with perverted lust in their quick rejection of Lot's offer. I mean, they never even gave it a second thought. And they tried instead to take the two men by force. And on top of that, they were even going to take Lot. Notice how they responded there in verse 9. Stand aside! Furthermore, they said, this one, and of course they're talking amongst themselves and gesturing towards Lot, this one came in as an alien. They aren't letting him forget that he wasn't born and raised in Sodom or in the plains of Sedin, that he is a foreigner. I mean, not only was he a foreigner, he was from a different part of the world. He came from Iraq, or what was then Mesopotamia. Uh, he, he wasn't even uh, you know, a, a native to this part of the world. 
So he was a total alien. And already he's acting like a judge. Now we would treat you worse than we treated, we'll treat them. In other words, they would subject him to even a worse humiliation and probably death. These men had totally surrendered themselves to their passions. And I believe they were driven by the forces of hell. When, when, when a foothold is given by a heart being totally hard to God and totally given over to self-worship and, and fulfillment of the things of the flesh, there's a gigantic foothold open and the enemy comes in like a flood. <coughs> and I think there were demons by the thousands all through this crowd. And this was a, a, a demonic situation here. And they were acting like brute beasts. Let's read from the quite often quoted passage in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, having to do with this. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 9. Now, Paul lived at a time when this kind of activity was, was just as rife as, as it was in Sodom. Rome, in its, in its heyday, was uh, totally given over to this kind of thing. In fact, it was considered many of the upper society of the days of Rome's heyday considered to have a young boy was just as significant as to having a young girl in bed with you at night. This was very characteristic of the upper classes in Roman society. Or do you not know that unrighteousness, verse 9, do you, do you not know that un, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor adulterers, uh, idolaters nor adulterers, nor effeminate nor homosexuals, nor thieves nor the covetous, nor drunkards nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. We have a tendency sometimes uh, in Christian circles to segment people in their sin and to say that one sin is worse than another sin. But you'll notice the collection here. It, it doesn't say that homosexuality is worse, worse than adultery. It doesn't say that going off and becoming involved, one, a man being inflamed towards another man or a woman with a woman is worse than a, a fornication or, or rape or any of these other things. It is not worse. It's all included here together. Uh, homo, uh, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, fornicators, it's all together. It's all an expression of total degradation and vileness. It's expression of people whose hearts are absolutely hard to God. That is why um, so many, well, as you probably know, there is a denomination in America called the Metropolitan Church. And the Metropolitan Church is a church which is a, supposedly a Christian church of homosexuals. And uh, they claim that they worship the same God and that they, you know, <coughs> are Christians too. Well, you can be a homosexual and be a Christian if God has saved you and if you are no longer committed to the expression of that activity. And the same way with somebody who's an adulterer. You can be saved as an adulterer, but you're supposed to stop then because you've been transformed. Or fornication or anything else you want to talk about, 
that is in this list here or any of the lists in Scripture. As we become converted, we give up those things. We don't say, well, I can be a Christian and do that too, because that's to totally read uh, into Scripture what it doesn't say, because the Scripture does not say that you can continue to be a, a born-again believer and be an adulterer, for example. I mean, constantly practice that. I'm not saying that a Christian can never fall into this kind of sin. Obviously, they can. But I mean, to practice that as a lifestyle and to excuse it. This is the real point of it all. Notice in verse 11 of this Corinthian passage, the emphasis is upon the word were. And such were some of you, but what? You were washed, sanctified, justified. In other words, when those things take place, you no longer are those things. Someone who is an adulterer is someone who practices adultery on an ongoing basis and considers it to be an acceptable lifestyle. That's not to say that someone who was an adulterer cannot be saved and thus changed or that a Christian never is, you know, going to become involved in adultery in some way. It does happen. But the person is convicted of that and the person repents of that and the person seeks to avoid that happening again because the person has been washed and justified and sanctified. But to cover it, to say, ah, God always forgives me so I can just continue to live like that and every time I do it, I'll just ask God forgiveness and it's okay, is to be an adulterer because that's the practice of lifestyle. And it says there that such a person shall not see the kingdom of God, which means the person is not born again in the true sense of Scripture. We're to no longer practice these activities. Turn, if you will, to 1 Timothy, chapter 1. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 8. 1 Timothy 1, 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, and you and I have all been entrusted, with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That being so, we are not to any longer practice any of these things given there. And sometimes we fail to recognize what all is equated here, right? That kind of an interesting list, isn't it? It puts immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and, uh, you know, even gossips in the same category, which tells us something about what God thinks about the heart that is not truly in submission to Him. Because the heart that's truly in submission to Him is convicted when something is practiced or when, when this occurs in their life knowing that this is not of God. But many choose to excuse it. This 
passage here in First Corinth in in First Timothy, of course, reinforces the passage in First Corinthians, and why not? Obviously, it's the writings of the Lord through Paul. There is no justification for the activities described here. You will not find any place in Scripture where a person is excused or justified for the things described in this passage or in many of the lists. There are other lists, right, in Scripture of things which are considered to be vile and ungodly, and there is no excuse for them. It's all gross sin in the eyes of God. And if we try to rationalize and say, well, really, it's not as bad as that sin, or to say that, uh, well, uh, yes, I do that, but we're, we're not perfect, right? Oh, I understand the little bumper sticker that says Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. I, I know, and I, I understand that. But if we use that as an excuse for cutting somebody off in traffic or worse, um, <laughs> That is uh, not at all what God would have us uh, to do. We are deceiving ourselves when we try to rationalize and say, well, it's not as bad as that person, or this sin is not as bad as that sin, or, you know, in the long run, God's going to forgive me because I'm a member of the kingdom of God. Yeah, God is merciful, and God is forgiving, and we can be extremely thankful for that. But if our heart attitude is such that this we want to do so much that we're going to do it and just hope God always keeps forgiving us, then there's something wrong at the root. There's something deeply wrong in our lives. And this is what we see, I think, in the case of Lot. Lot faced impending doom. And he didn't even realize that God had provided a way because the two men who were in the house with him were not two men. They were angels. And that's what's so exciting about verses 10 and 11 of this particular passage of Genesis 19. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And then... They struck the men who were standing at the door with the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. <laughs> they pulled Lot in, yanked him in the house. <laughs> Let us handle this, Lot. And then supernaturally, by the power of God, they blinded the whole crew out there. Now, if the whole thing weren't so horrifying, it would really be funny to see this howling mob crashing into each other, trying to find the doorway to this house. But what's really eye-opening, no pun intended, is to realize that these men were so blinded by their lust that the fact that they were suddenly struck physically blind didn't frighten them or didn't even cool their ardor. They were still trying to find the door so they could break it down and get to these two men. I mean, talk about gone. These guys were gone. And obviously there was no hope for them, right? Because God had already condemned them to total destruction. And within less than 24 hours, they would all be incinerated and evaporated and gone. Just as God did 
to the world in the days of Noah. Only he washed them all away instead of burning them all away because there was no hope anymore for them. It's not that they had sinned so much that God couldn't save them. It's just that God knew they would never turn from their wicked way no matter how much preaching they heard from Noah or anybody else. They would reject and thus they would be destroyed. Look, if you will, beginning at verse 12 of Genesis 19. Then the men, that's the two angels, said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. Let me just stop for a minute before I read on here. This tells us something significant about angels. Angels are not omniscient. Angels do not know all things. Angels have limited knowledge. They didn't know that he didn't have a son. They didn't know that he really didn't have any other family in the place. They knew, I mean, they would find out, of course, that he had two, that his daughters had two fiancés, but that was it. Verse 13, For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And when Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and said, up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Oh. And when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hands, his hand, and the hand of his wife and the hands of his daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. And it came about, when they had brought them outside, that one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. And now behold, your servant has found has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown to me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest disaster overtake me and I die. And he's playing God here. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small? That my life may be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Now hurry and get out of here. Escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the town was called Zoar. And the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. By the way, by extension, going back to that comment I made earlier about verse 12, these angels were not omniscient. Satan is a fallen angel. He, by definition, is not omniscient either. Satan does not know all things. He's extremely intelligent, but he does not know all things. And uh, he cannot read your mind. 
He has great limits, and we need not to be afraid of him. It's obvious that Lot saw something of the power of these two men. <laughs> they were able to strike the whole crowd blind out there. Whoa, who do we have here with us? These are not two men. These are angels in disguise, or whatever he thought, you know, whether he knew anything about angels or not, we don't know, but these men have supernatural power, and somehow they are representative of the God of Abraham that he remembered. So when they said, get your family out of here, he believed them. They said they were going to destroy the city. And of course, he knew in his heart the city was worth worthy of destruction. He knew he lived in hell on earth. But he didn't hate it enough to get away from it on his own. He believed the angels, though. And he hurried to get the only ones in the city that he really cared, cared that much about, and those were his two daughters' fiancés. Now, were they in the crowd the night before? Or, you know, earlier that night? I, I would gather from this, probably not. Hopefully they weren't. If they were, what did they think of Lot? After all, he had offered their fiancés, the two girls they were going to marry, to the mob. What would you think of such a fo potential father-in-law? I, 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 I don't think they were in the crowd, or else they wouldn't be interested in marrying the girls, probably. But did they hear about it? It's possible, because you can imagine how shocking that would be. I mean, that would be an electrifying event which would pass through the city very quickly, and most would know about that. But it seems that they probably didn't because, in effect, they said, who is this Lord you're talking about? We don't know of him. I mean, has any city ever been destroyed like this before? You must be joking. Ha, ha, ha. I think you have flipped your lid, Lot. They would not go with him because they thought he was jesting, the scripture says some jest. This, I think, indicates that they didn't know what had happened just, tran just transpired just hours earlier. Because had they known that, they wouldn't have been so quick to laugh. Because obviously something supernatural happened to that crowd if they were all suddenly, the whole crowd was blinded. That was not a natural phenomenon. And so they probably didn't know about it. Well, as the sun began to rise, on the appointed judgment day, the angels pressed Lot to take his wife and his daughters and to flee from the doomed city. Now, the first three words of verse 16 are hard to comprehend, but he hesitated. <laughs> But you know, this tells us something about a heart that is hard, eyes that are blind, a person who doesn't really get the point. He hesitated. It's incredible. Sure, disaster is impending. I mean, these guys are telling him they're going to destroy the city, and certainly they've got the power to do it because they just blinded the whole mob instantaneously. I mean, we're not talking about a couple of shysters here. So what kind of hesitation? What's the root of his hesitation? Was it hesitation of doubt? 
even after what he had seen. It could be he had a hard time believing the words of the angels himself, after he'd, particularly after he had told his sons-in-law and they had laughed him to scorn. Maybe he began to think, maybe I'm overreacting. You know? Maybe these guys have some power, but not that kind of power. I mean, has a city ever been destroyed like this before? What if he rushed headlong out of the city in panic and the city wasn't destroyed? What's the name of, I forgot, boy, the prophet who was swallowed by the, Jonah. Jonah. I can't remember Jonah. <laughs> Every name was going through my mind except Jonah. <laughs> I was thinking of Ahab, you know, but <laughs> Moby Dick, you know. <laughs> but, uh, no. That was Jonah's problem. He didn't want to run over there and prophesy that God was going to destroy the city and have God's mercy come down because these people repent and not destroy the city. Because then he'd see Lot like a fool, you know, a prophet whose words weren't fulfilled. I think Lot was afraid of being laughingstock here, of the whole city. I mean, his sons-in-law had already laughed at him. And they're probably the only two people in the city who even cared a little bit about him. And not only that, he'd probably be the laughingstock of the whole valley of Sidim. Or was it hesitation of first love? It might not have been so much doubt as it was his first love. His first love was the city of Sodom. He loved the comfort of city lifestyle. He, he loved the uh, environment. Oh, he didn't like, the scripture tells us that he was vexed in his heart by the wickedness of the people there, but not enough to leave, obviously, or to try to preach the truth. Maybe he couldn't bear the thought of leaving this comfortable lifestyle and seeing this wonderful city destroyed. I mean, you have to, might have to go back and live like a Bedouin. Oh, terrible. You know, live in a tent out in the countryside and listen to the bleeding of sheep all night. Maybe he didn't want to do that. But it reminds us of the world in which we live. Millions have hesitated. They've heard the word. God has been made clear to them, but they hesitate. They hesitate because they don't believe. Can it really be? Well, we, we hear this so much in our society today, don't we? If God is really a God of love, could he possibly condemn someone to an eternal hell? Oh, no, that couldn't be. If he's a real God of love, but that's because they do not understand what love really is. It's, to our society, it's the warm, fuzzy feeling, right? It's an emotion that we have. And we can turn it on, we can turn it off. And, uh, you know, it can change, it can cool, it can get hot. It's not a decision of the will. And as a result, people don't understand it. I mean, they don't understand it as a decision of will because that's what it really is. We will to love. We choose to love or we choose not to love. It doesn't just come upon, you know, the old song, uh, some enchanted evening, you know, far across the crowded room, you know, clang, clang, and, you know. <laughs> the whole, whole concept of falling in love is, uh, you know, Hollywood. It's not real. We choose to love. We choose to care for that person. Now, it might start out with the tingles and, you know, puppy love and infatuation, but it doesn't turn into true love until we choose to go that route. We choose to love God or we choose not to love God. 
This man was an example of one who had chosen to love Sodom enough to stay there in, in spite of the vileness of the city. And he hesitated. And people hesitate to turn to God. Many hesitate to come to God because they're afraid they'll have to change their lifestyle. That they won't be able to continue to live the way they've been living. Hmm, that's probably true. <laughs> and they don't want to give that up. You know? Because it's something they love. And when a person chooses to follow that course, that person, of course, is not really understanding what the ultimate um, product will be of that. They have no concept of the reality of an eternal outer darkness, of an unending hell. But the Lord had mercy on Lot and on his family because the angels, it says, took them by the hand and said, you people are leaving this city and drug them right out the gate. Reminds me again, I think I've mentioned this before, of C.S. Lewis, who in one of his books said, the Lord drugged me kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. <laughs> that was at least the way he viewed it. Once he was out of the city, the angel said to Lot and to his wife, now flee into the hills. And I'm sure they pointed, flee up there into the hills, which were to the east of them. Flee up into the hills and escape from the impending catastrophe. Then Lot reacts. It shouldn't be surprising to us anymore after what we see Lot do. But it seems incredible that he should say, oh, no, no, don't send us up there. We want to go to that little town over there. Because if we go up there, we'll die. Well, if we go over there, we'll be okay. And who's he talking to? <laughs> He's talking to the two angels who are going to destroy the place. They know what's going to be destroyed and what's not. I mean, the angels had just drugged them out of the city to save them. So the angels are going to send them up in the hill to be killed. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of the children of Israel who came out of Egypt, you know. God saves them by miracle after miracle, and then they don't have water for a little while. And they say, oh, why did God bring us out here to kill us? You know, it's funny, <laughs> but we act like that, don't we? We say, woe is me, God's not hearing my prayer. And why is God doing this to me? We're really much like such people. And that's why it's here for us to look at it and say that is not godly attitude or action. It's not reasonable. And of course, we're not always reasonable when we deal with God, are we? God's going to save you for one thing just to throw you into destruction somewhere else. It doesn't make really any sense at all. I mean, sure, if you've ever seen the mountains above the Valley of Sidim, it's not paradise, you know. It's not being sent up into a lovely forested place where an idyllic environment. I mean, they're burned, barren hills. Uh, really not a terribly desirable place to go. But God isn't going to send them up there to get murdered by some outlaws or to die of exposure. If God could save them from the city, he was going to certainly care for them in the mountains. It's interesting for us to note, as we've looked now through the life of Lot up to this point, that whatever he knows is right to do, whatever God tells him to do, he always wants to argue and compromise. Oh, no, Lord, no, no, can't be that way. Uh, let's do it this way, okay? That sound familiar at all? I think sometimes we want to argue with God too. 
Many, rather than studying the Word, say, no, what is it God is saying? Well, that's what He's saying. Now I'll do it. We look it up and we say, oh, no, you can't really mean that, Lord. You must mean this. And so we reinterpret the Word so we won't feel guilty about what we're doing or what, or what we want to do. And to me, that's the whole thing, that, that's the theme behind going back to this metropolitan church. That's the theme behind this church. They take whatever passages in Scripture which seem to indicate that the lifestyle of homosexuality is wrong, and they either throw them out or change them so it doesn't say that, so that they can go ahead and live their lifestyle. Well, to me, that is such folly, because if God says it, you aren't going to change Him. You better change, you better conform to God, because... Uh, when you try to come up against God, you're running against that immovable object, right? And you ain't no irresistible force. So, Lot pleaded with the angels to be allowed to go to the little bitty town of Zoar. It's just little. It's okay, right? If I go over there. He made a point of the fact it was a small town. In fact, the word Zoar means insignificant. It's just an insignificant little town over there. You can hardly see it. It's way over there. It's okay, right? Uh, we'll go over there if that's all right with you. He didn't want to ultimately give up the lifestyle of the city, or in this case, the village. It was still better than going up and living in the mountains, he thought. So what did the angels do? They granted him his request. Now talk about the mercy of God. God says, okay, because you see, this changed what the intent was originally. God was intending, uh, let, let me back up and say, God knows all things. And God knows before Lot ever makes the request what Lot's request is going to be. So God has already spared Zoar in, in his own plan. But Lot didn't know that. And God spared this little town from the destruction that he was reaping uh, on the other four cities of the valley of Sidim. And so he was able to flee to the little town of Zoar, and Zoar thus was not destroyed, as were Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, all four of which were just wiped off the surface of the map. Zoar was saved because of Lot's request. It's interesting, the instantaneous contact God had, uh, those angels had with God, because the angels were able to immediately grant his request. Now, the angels were not there to change God's plan. They were uh, there to carry it out. But obviously, the communication, you know, sometimes we think angels have got to go flap, 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 and fly off up into heaven someplace to talk with God. You know. No, the angels had the mind of the Lord. As soon as the request was made, God said, let him have it. I mean, grant his request. And, uh, and they did. And then the angels hurried Lot on the way because he said, I can't destroy the cities until you get out of here, Lot. So go. Granted all your requests. Listen to all your bellyache and your hesitation. Now, would you please go? And so Lot went on his way. And as they neared the city of Zoar, destruction fell. Now, we don't have time to go into it today. We, we're going to have a missionary moment here in a couple of minutes. So, we'll, next week, 
focus on what happened here. And what, what is brimstone anyway? Uh, what probably happened? There are various uh, theories that have been brought up as to what happened here. Physical explanations to explain this. Uh, of course, I've always heard, you know, I forget who the first preacher was who said, well, God dropped an A-bomb on <laughs> these cities. <laughs> well, God doesn't need an atomic bomb to destroy a city. But uh, we'll, we'll look at that next week.